This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Open your Bibles, please, to the New Testament book of, of Hebrews, and we'll be in chapter 11 and also uh, going into a few verses in chapter 12. Last week, we began a new series uh, that we called Hang Tough, and uh, made us a little bit uncomfortable. We probably rubbed the cat's fur the wrong way. Because we ask these questions, what happened to us as Christians? How did we become so soft? How did we become fragile? How how have we as Christians developed such thin skin to where we get our feelings hurt so easily? And then what happened to the mentality of the early church where they faced hardships and unfairness and tragedy and pandemics and being under the cruel Roman war machine without having their levels of anxiety and fear off of the charts like mine would have been and many of yours would have been. And I'm sure Jesus must look down at us and think, what? You're freaking out? You're freaking out about what? You're freaking out because... Tyreek Hill was traded? Some of you said yes. You're freaking out because you didn't have water for a few hours or a couple of days this past week? I think Jesus would tell, you, tell us, have you forgotten that I walked into Jerusalem without a house, without a penny to my name, without a car to drive? My only transportation was a borrowed donkey. And I rode that donkey down Main Street knowing I was going to be arrested and beaten and killed on your behalf. And, and, and tell me again, what's bothering you? And if that isn't embarrassing enough, wait until you hear the scripture that I'm about to read to you. In fact, th- this is really humbling to me, but this passage is so amazing that it's way better than my sermon. And, and, and of course, that's the way it always is. That's the way it's supposed to be. God's God's word is to be front and center. My little comments, eh, take it or leave it. They're secondary. But anyway, this passage is so rich. It's so down to earth. Can I just say it's gritty? And uh, there's so much emotion. and, And there's frankly no way that in the few minutes you will give me this morning before walking out on me that we can mine all of the gold out of it. But let's start digging. Hebrews 11. Now, just a couple more things. Before we get into the reading, let me point out a couple of things. Number one is, we don't know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. We know it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but as far as the human author who penned it, we don't know for sure. In fact, out of the 66 books in in our Bible, there are just a handful, and we don't have complete certainty who wrote them. First and second Samuel, for example, there there are a couple of those books. Some say Samuel wrote them. Others say Nathan the prophet did. Uh, Esther is another book. Some, Some think that maybe Mordecai wrote it. Job is another book. And Hebrews is in that list as well. Some think, well, the Apostle Paul wrote it, but we're just guessing. The second thing I want to point out is that Hebrews 11 is what is called the Hall of Faith. Not the Hall of Fame, but the Hall of Faith. And in this chapter, and I counted them, there are approximately 15 named heroes of the faith 
and some others that are not named. But, but these were people that had faith that was head and shoulders above the average person. But understand that when we call them heroes of the faith, this doesn't necessarily mean that they were perfect people. In fact, many of them were very imperfect. You would not allow some of them to be on staff here at this church. They were that imperfect. In some ways, Hebrews 11 kind of reminds me of a few of our founding fathers. You know, some of our founding fathers were kind of rough. They were kind of tough. They had flaws. And, and of course, there's a move to strike out of our history books some of these people because of their past. And, and I understand that. But, but, but having said that, if, if you're bothered by less than perfect people in our history books, and, and honestly, I'm, I'm not bothered too much because I know my past and I, I know some of your past, you know, your addictions, your unfaithfulness. But, but if you're really bothered by our imperfect founding leaders, then the heroes God decided to put in Hebrews 11 will really bother you. Because in that list, you have a man that got drunk and committed incest. You have a man who stole another man's wife, had her husband killed. You have a man who swindled his brother out of his inheritance. You have a woman who was a prostitute. You have a man that was a womanizer. You have a murderer, a liar. I'm telling you, you would not hire them on as part of your pastoral staff. Now, it wasn't that God overlooked their past. He didn't. But these flawed people became recipients of God's grace, and there was something about their faith in God that just set them apart, and God inducted them into this hall of faith. Now, one more detail before we jump in. The book of Hebrews was a first century document originally written to Jewish Christians. And they were wondering this. They were wondering, is it worth following Jesus? Is it worth following Jesus when I know that my commitment to follow Jesus might lead me to the Colosseum to be devoured by wild animals? Is it worth following Jesus when, when sometimes Jesus appears to turn a blind eye to war and hunger and hardship, unfairness and is it worth following Jesus when, when this startup religion, it's so new, we don't even know if it's going to survive the first century. And here's the thing. 2,000 years ago, nobody knew if Christianity would survive. And they could not have imagined our world today, a town like ours, Eldorado Springs, clear across the world, seeing churches on every other corner, and knowing that most of the people you would run into called themselves Christians. They could not imagine learning that those who married wanted a Christian wedding in a church. They couldn't imagine that when people die, their families would want a Christian funeral at a church. 2,000 years ago, they couldn't have imagined that because there were no church buildings. 2,000 years ago, people couldn't have imagined Christians would possess multiple copies of a book we call the Bible. Because there were no Bibles back then. Just scrolls, just fragments, nothing compiled into what we have today. 2,000 years ago, there were just scattered gatherings of, of people who believed that Jesus was the Savior and he rose from the dead. And they believed that simply, listen, because they had either met someone who saw the resurrected Savior or they had met someone who had met someone who had met someone who had seen Jesus. They didn't have all of the compelling reasons we have to follow Jesus today. 
And so these people to whom Hebrews was written, they, they were asking themselves, are we just kidding them ourselves? Is, are we lying to our kids? Is this startup religion real? Is it worth following Jesus? And, and the author of Hebrews writes to his first century audience and says, yes, a thousand times, yes, yes, a million times, yes, it is worth following Jesus. So here's how the author begins, Hebrews 11, verse 1. If you were raised in church, you've heard this. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So that's the definition of biblical faith. And let me just give you a simple illustration to make it practical. When you called us nearly 28 years ago to become your pastors, we were, at that time we were employed by the World Missions Department of our organization. We had been serving in South America you called us, and after a fairly long process, we finally felt that not only were you as a church calling us, but God was also calling us. But honestly, we were hesitant to accept the call because, one, I never wanted to be a pastor. I had no interest in that. In fact, I had stated publicly, I don't know how many times I never want to be a pastor. I'm not called to be a pastor. I don't want to be a pastor. I never want to be a pastor. Another lesson why to never say never. But but secondly, there was some hesitation because this church had had such strong leadership in the past. Pastor Richard Beckham, who comes to our early service, and we're honored that he's part of this church. And, and then Pastor Ken Smith, who is part of our early service as well. They had been pastoring this church two separate times, totaling over 20 years. And, 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 and from my perspective, they were just giants of the faith. And, um, and, and you know, I, I thought that there's no way I can ever fill their shoes and but we finally accepted the position, hoping that we wouldn't mess things up too badly. Now, again, that's been nearly 28 years. But if I remember correctly, when the church board called us and, and they offered the job to us, they did not detail the financial package. But it didn't matter to us because money had nothing to do with our accepting or rejecting the offer. In fact, when the money part did come up initially, if you would have compared the buying power, understand, not the dollar amount, but the buying power where we had been serving in South America, compared to the buying power here in the States, initially we actually took a pay cut to come here. But, but again, the money had nothing to do with it. And, and, and to just emphasize this, please get this, the church over the years has been more than generous to us. You, you have treated us far better than we deserved. I want to make that clear. We have zero complaints. You are way beyond awesome. The call was issued to us. And after nearly a month and a half of saying no to the church and doing a little bit of fighting against God, because we were happy where we were serving in South America, we finally said yes. Now, as we accepted the position, and even though at that time that the finances in the church were really tight, and there was some indebtedness, there was no money in the bank, and there were times when payday rolled around, and, and there wasn't enough money to pay us, and so they said, you know what, we're going to have to wait until Sunday, and hopefully the people will be generous, and enough money will come in to, so that you could get paid. Yet, we still believe that this church would take care of us. The church board assured us that they would. We believed what they said. And, and so, that right there is faith. They made a commitment to us. We believed that they would come through, and they have, again, way better than we've deserved. Faith is the confidence. Faith is the assurance that someone is going to keep their promise. Let's keep reading. 
Verse 2, this, in other words, being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see, is what the ancients were, were commended for. So again, notice this is very important. The people in this chapter were not commended for having a squeaky clean past because they didn't have a squeaky clean past. They, they weren't commended because they accomplished great things for God. They, they weren't commended because they were great pastors and, and, and missionaries. They were commended because one day these people had an encounter with God. And even though at times they messed up, yet they lived their lives with such a high level of faith and trust and confidence, it impressed God. Well, the Hebrew writer, to better help us understand this, goes all the way back to the Old Testament and begins to talk about some of the famous people that we grew up hearing about. Moses, you've heard about Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Enoch, Noah, David, and others. And he brings out how God made them a promise and they lived their entire lives as if God were going to keep that promise even when they saw no evidence that God would ever come through. And the false doctrine that has been taught by so many is that, well, if we just have enough faith, God has to answer our prayers. And we say, you know, the reason so-and-so wasn't healed because they didn't have enough faith. And that there is the biblical matter of having faith. And many times we don't have enough faith. But what, what about the heroes in Hebrews 11? These people were commended for their faith, which probably means their faith was way stronger than your faith, and I know it was way stronger than my faith. And these people got up and lived every single day, believing God's promise, yet we're going to find out that when they died, they never got paid. They never got a paycheck like we did. They never got to see God fulfill His promise to them. And this is so convicting to me this past week because we pray on Monday and if God hasn't answered by Friday, we're not even sure there's a God. Or we pray for someone's healing and instead they die. It's like, how can we believe in a God that doesn't answer our prayers? But these people in Hebrews 11 live their, listen, entire lives praying, trusting God, yet they never saw him come through on his promise. Well, then the author shows us how tough. You know, this series is about being tough, hang tough. We see how tough these heroes of the faith were. You know, last week we mentioned how tough Jesus was. Here's what these heroes went through in Hebrews 11, verse 36. Some faced jeers. Now, you know, a few of us might have experienced some jeers, probably not for our faith, but maybe trash talking on the court. Some face jeers and flogging. We talked about that last week. Remember ripping skin off the stomach and back over and over? And it goes on and says, while still others were chained and put in prison. Chained and put in prison. Just let this kind of settle in as we go through this. It gets worse. It says they were stoned. And this is not with a needle or anything like that to get stoned. Rocks. Big rocks. Pelted with rocks. And this next part makes me weak. I can hardly 
I can hardly take this. It says they were sawed in two. Think about that. And I know some say, you know, Joe, that's too graphic. And understand that the saw that they used was not an electric saw that would make it happen fast. This, it was some kind of homemade saw back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Heroes of the faith suffering because of their faith. It says they were put to death by the sword. Sometimes heads were chopped off, sometimes stuck into the heart. Heroes of the faith. And then the author goes on and talks about that those who weren't killed for their faith, it says they went about in sheepskins and goatskins. Why did they do that? It wasn't a fashion statement. Why did they wear those? Because they were so poor. They were so poor. Destitute. You know what destitute means? And I looked that up. Destitute means without the basic needs of life, food, shelter, clothing. They did not have that. Again, this goes against the prosperity gospel where they say that God has to bless you. Persecuted and mistreated. And, and when it says persecuted and mistreated, it doesn't mean, oh, he said something mean to me. No, this was physical bodily harm. Well, at this point in the text, and if you're kind of studying this, it's almost the, the, like the author pauses for a moment and, and he pushes back, sits down in his chair and, and puts his quill back into his, the ink bottle and, and he begins to think. And, and all, it's almost like the emotion of, of all of these stories suddenly hits him. And maybe he thinks of a woman named Jochebed who had this sweet little baby named Moses. And there was an edict, an order to kill all male babies and and as a mom, she can't bear the thought of Pharaoh's men throwing her little baby into the Nile River to drown him or be eaten by alligators. So as a last resort, you remember the story. She makes a little boat of reeds. The Bible calls it bulrushes and takes it down to the Nile River. And man, I have a feeling that the tears begin to flow as she gets near the Nile River. And she kisses his cheek and says, Mama loves you. Don't ever forget that. Mama loves you. Whispers goodbye and walks off, wondering if she will ever see Moses alive again. But then the Hebrew writer in his mind fast forwards when Moses no longer is a baby, but he's an 80-year-old man. And, and he walks in and faces Pharaoh. And, and he says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And he throws down his staff and it turns into a snake. And of course, leads to all of the plagues that eventually forces Pharaoh to let God's people head to the promised land. And then maybe the Hebrew writer, as he's pausing, he's thinking of Abraham who, who trusted God and left everything in his homeland and his family to follow God and to go to a place he had never been before, never heard of before. And You say, no big deal. Hey, some of you get freaked out when you get outside of Cedar County or whatever county you're from. And, and you can't even go to Woods Grocery Store without your GPS. You know, turn left on Main Street. Abraham was going to another country. He had no compass, no map, no GPS. And, and then God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son and, and try to comprehend 
just the emotion of Abraham as he gets near the top of Mount Moriah and he has his knife ready to drive it through his son's heart. And all of a sudden, the voice of God stops him and says, wait a minute. And he looked there in the briars. There was a ram that God had provided for the sacrifice. The author of Hebrews then thinks of Noah and and perhaps just tries to comprehend all of the heckling he took, not for just a few months or a year, but the nearly 100 years it took to build that ark. And then his mind goes to Samson. I mean, how do we talk about Samson? What was Samson? Well, Samson was a womanizer. He was a man that was born specifically to deliver God's people. He struggled with lust, and he would go and spend nights with prostitutes, but that life of sin finally caught up with him, and and he finds himself in chains and having his eyes poked out. But one last time, remember, he gets that little child and says, would you take me to the main pillars of the building there, the main building? And the little child leads him there, and knowing he had wasted his life. Can you imagine the emotion of Samson? He had wasted his life. But he comes to God with faith and prays to him, and God hears his prayer. And as he pushed on those main pillars that were foundational to holding up the roof of that building that the Bible says had thousands of partiers celebrating Samson's demise, God honored Samson's faith and one more time gave him strength. And those pillars began to move. And that roof and that building came crashing to the ground. And the Bible says that he took out more in his death that day, took out more of the enemy than he had in his entire life. And it's almost like the Hebrew author, as he's pausing there with his quill and his ink pen, he's he's thinking about all these people and all how their lives, even with their checkered past, in different ways were connected and intertwined. And and here in this first century document, he's trying to answer, is it worth following Jesus? And as he's writing this on, on our side of the cross, as he's writing this on our side of the resurrection, I just wonder if the tears didn't start flowing down the Hebrew writer's face. And he begins thinking, oh my word, oh my word. What What if these heroes would have been like us? Gotten upset, gotten their feelings hurt because God didn't come through like they thought he would. Well, it's, it's almost as if with a jolt, he's jarred back to, fact, to, to the fact that he's writing the document. So he picks up his quill again and writes what I think, honestly, I think it's one of the most powerful statements in the entire New Testament. I mean, it is so powerful. You ready for the statement? He says this in verse 38, the world was not worthy of them. Isn't that powerful? In other words, the world didn't deserve them. You didn't deserve them. As soft as you are, as much as you get your feelings hurt, I didn't deserve them. As fragile as I am, as much as I have a tendency to, to get fearful and anxious, these heroes were tough. And the world was not worthy of them. They didn't deserve them. Also, it says, they wandered in deserts and mountains. Have you ever wandered in deserts and mountains? 
I mean, you think you have it rough if you have to stay in the Motel 6 instead of a Holiday Inn. Or if you spend a night in a tent, you're so sore the next day. They did this night after night after night, and it says they were in caves and holes in the ground. And, and I wonder if at this point the Hebrew author didn't just stop again, that maybe settled over him how, how soft he had become. And, and perhaps he's convicted for griping and complaining. And, and again, realizes they were way better. They were way more committed than we are. Would you look up here a second, please? There was once a version of of faithfulness to God that puts us to shame. And these people were faithful. Why? Because, well, you know, God blessed them so much and always answered their prayers right away and gave them everything they wanted. Is that right? No, that is wrong. In fact, the opposite is true because verse 39 says, these were all commended for their faith. Listen, yet none of them received what had been promised. They had way more faith than you do. They had way more faith than I do. Yet none of them received what God had promised them. Well, that was a look to these past heroes. But then the author of Hebrews 11 says, it's your turn. And he turns his attention or her attention to you and me. In Hebrews 11.40, says, God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect? Now, let me explain that verse because that's, that's kind of tough to understand. The author says that the reason that God did not do what these people believed he would do while they were still alive is because God had something bigger and better up his sleeve. God was up to something so big and, and so international and so eternal that the timing had to be perfect. And so God said, I will fulfill my promise, but it will be in the fullness of time. So let me summarize it this way. This is amazing. Have I said that before today? I think I have. Everybody in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to what God was going to do. Forward to what God was going to do. They were on the other side of the cross. They were on the other side of the resurrection. They had no idea what would happen. Yet they were still faithful. The other side of the cross. The other side of the tomb. We, on the other hand, 2,000 years later, we're on this side of the cross. We're on this side of the resurrection. This side of the tomb. We should be the most fearless confident people on the planet because we can look back and see how God kept His word Yet we're still so fearful and anxious and soft and fragile. These heroes look forward by faith and we're faithful. We look backward by sight and are fearful. Well, let's just quickly go to Hebrews chapter 12. There are three or four verses there that tie into this. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, some translations say crowd of witnesses. This one says cloud. Of course, referring to these Old Testament saints. And by the way, it's better for us today because not only do we have the Old Testament saints, but we have the New Testament saints. You know, the Apostle Paul who risked his life over and over and Peter who was eventually crucified by 
by Nero because of his faith, Matthew and James and John, and, and then it includes those who came along following centuries, those who translated, for, for example, the New Testament into English in the 15th and 16th centuries, and, and, and you know what happened to those original people? Tyndale burned at the stake, and so all of the centuries have people that make up this extraordinary cloud of witnesses. But can you imagine that great cloud of witnesses looking down on us in America and listening to us whine and complain and blame? You know, blame the president. Blame Congress. Blame the city council. Blame the CDC. Or the Chinese. You know, certainly blame the cops. Blame the teachers. Blame our parents, blame our founding fathers, demand our, uh, our rights, build the wall or tear down the wall, tax the rich, make the poor work, take everyone off of disability, find somebody to sue, take back our country. Did I cover pretty much every category there? And can you imagine what this great cloud of witnesses what they're thinking as, as they hear all of our self-proclaimed expert opinions on all of the above? In fact, forget the great cloud of witnesses in heaven for a moment. Can you imagine how disgusting we must sound to the Christians in Ukraine? Four million of them have fled their country. The refugees someplace with nothing more than the clothes on their backs. Four million. Some of their families, family members have been killed. Others have been taken prisoner. Families don't know if they're dead or alive. And they get on their knees, beg God for mercy and pray for their kids. Listen, their kids have seen death, blood, destruction in front of their eyes. But they still continue to believe in a God who is faithful. I'll admit, I've got a soft place in my heart for Ukraine. I was there a few years ago. Had the privilege of going and preaching in several churches there in Kiev and Zaporozhia. And I was just, uh, I met some incredible people there. Some of the churches, huge churches, just in awe of the work that God did there through the Orthodox Church. And and I, I, I met some people that, of faith that put me to shame, and I wonder where they are right now. And how embarrassing it would be if they were to hear us pray, Oh, God, oh, God, help my Amazon package to get here today. I mean, can you imagine Ukrainians hear us pray this? Or, or, or God, help my wife to find her car keys so we can go out to eat. Oh, oh God, help my Botox injections. Uh, to take away my wrinkles so I can stay young looking. <laughs> oh, God, you know, we've been without water for a few hours. I need to take a shower. God, would you let the water be turned back on again? Or, or oh, God, would you bless my family? You know, my family that lives in a very nice house in a safe community with electricity. Bless my family that has plenty to eat and has two cars and smartphones and a microwave and heat in the winter and AC in the summer. Oh, God, would you just please bless us? I think the people in Ukraine would be, really? That's it? 
I, I wonder if these people in Ukraine would say, wait, wait, did, did you even pray for us? You prayed for your Amazon package to get here today, but did, did you pray for us? You know, we haven't had electricity or water for six weeks now, and all the food we have is a bit of bread that we get once in a while. And You didn't pray for us, but you prayed that God would bless you. Oh, God, bless us, bless us, bless us. Well, the Hebrew writer continues and, and says this to those of us that are overwhelmed, to those of us who may think Christianity is in decline, to those of us who feel the world is coming apart. Here's what he says. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So notice instead of blaming, instead of being critical, instead of being all upset and anxious, he said, get untangled from your sin. Because a lot of our issues stem back to our sin. But not only get untangled from our sin, he says, throw off those unnecessary activities that are bogging you down and they're wearing you out. And so here are a few questions to consider. What sin or sins are you allowing to camp out in your life? Not, not the accidental sin that you repent and turn from, but the sin that, you, that has you entangled. And you're allowing it to be in your life continually. What is that sin? Or how about this question? What is there in your life or in your schedule that isn't necessarily sin, but it's entangling you with an overly busy schedule that doesn't allow you to function for Jesus like you should? Will you keep saying, oh... I can't help with the ministry because I'm too busy. I am so stressed. So what do you need to throw off? What do you need to become untangled from? But then he keeps on bearing in a little more. And he says, and let us, talking to us, run with perseverance the race marked out for us. That is, don't back down. Don't say it's unfair. Don't say, so-and-so hurt my feelings. He says, Christians, even in America, run with perseverance the race that Christ has for us. Don't stop. Don't quit. Well, while we're running the race with perseverance, he's, he goes on and says, let's fix our eyes. <laughs> you know, some of us have our eyes fixed on who we can blame, who we can disagree with with the pandemic, on fixed our eyes on to get vaccinated, or why would you idiot even consider that you know we've all become medical experts we fixed our eyes on a political party we fixed our eyes on on things we fixed our eyes on sports we fixed our eyes on our family but what happens is when we fix our eyes on those things we get our eyes off of jesus and so that's why he says let's fix our eyes on what on jesus if you're worried about what's going on in our world today, get your eyes on Jesus. If, if you're wondering what will happen with inflation and rising gas prices, fix your eyes on Jesus. If, if you're afraid of the political climate in America, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus because your tough, fearless Savior, He walked from the cross into the jaws of death, walked through the gates of hell, Walked right up to Satan. But thank God on that third day, he defeated the cross. You know, he defeated death. He defeated he uh, hell. Amen. Defeated Satan. And because of that, our tough, all-powerful, omnipotent God tells us with great authority, fear not, I will be with you even unto the end of the earth. 
can, can you imagine if for just one day, uh, just one day, in our country, every single person who claims to be a follower of Jesus would say, I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus. I'm going to say what I think Jesus would want me to say. I'm going to do what I think Jesus would want me to do. What would happen? Let me tell you what would happen. It changed the world once. And with as many as there are of us that call ourselves Christians, it could change the world again. But not if we're afraid, not if we're fragile, not if we're soft, not if we're entangled in sin. So fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And, you know, we've so romanticized the cross. We've, uh, you know, we've basically made hymns about it. You know, the wonderful cross, the beautiful cross. But back then the cross was anything but beautiful. It was anything but wonderful. Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. Why was there shame? Because bodies would be left up there, putrefied bodies day after day. The cross was not beautiful. Back then, the cross was pain and shame. But Jesus willingly endured the shame of the cross, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And just when we think, okay, the Hebrew writer is finally going to put a period on this segment, he says this in verse 3, consider him. In other words, focus on him. Uh, Fix your eyes on Jesus. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men. Why did he endure such opposition from sinful men? Here it is. So you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus was tough. Endured the flogging, the shame, the pain. So you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now real quick. I just want you to know everybody's clock is off right now. Okay, I know it's showing 12 o'clock. But something happened in the world. And so it's not really 12 o'clock right now. Um. But I want to say something to a couple of groups, and we'll be out of here sometime. First, I want to say something to all of you who are 50 years and older. Now, uh, we don't have to raise our hands. Everyone can tell who we are. <laughs> everyone, everyone can tell who you are. Uh, but many of us in this age group have grown weary. We've lost heart. And here's the reason. Because we fixed our eyes on a political system. We fixed our eyes on a political leader. We fixed our eyes on the good old days. We fixed our eyes on all of the changes that have taken place. And therefore, we have grown weary. We're negative. And some of us are even cranky. Can I just say, as one of those people over 50, we need to knock it off. And I'll tell you why. Because we're scaring the children. We are. You know, the generation that's coming behind us, they're taking their cue from us. And so here's what we're portraying to them. We're portraying, oh my goodness, if we don't get the right person in office, that's the end of our country. And if we don't have religious freedom like my mama did, like my grandmama did, it's over. Listen, government policies matter. The right people in office matter, but they don't matter nearly as much as men and women like you and me who walk humbly, yet walk boldly and fearlessly for Jesus in times of trouble. I mean, we should know this from the Old Testament. We should know this from the New Testament. We should know this from history. Wicked people, wicked governments, wicked policies come and go. 
You know, you have Pharaohs and Neros and Caesars and Hitlers and Stalins and the Putins. They come and go. God is bigger than any leader. And so we need to stop this whole thing of saying, oh, is a country are, are done. And we may be done, but it's not because of a president or a Congress. If we're done, it's because we as Christians have become willy-nilly. We become weak and fragile, soft and fearful. Understand, we're not done because of a government. If we're done, it's because the church of Jesus Christ has wilted. So those of us over 50, we need to model for the next generation that God is in control. God can be trusted. Yes, we need to get involved in the political system, but we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. So let's knock off this whole thing of doom and gloom. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.